We're now going to look at an introduction to the historical books. For the Hebrew scriptures, this means we're about to enter into the former prophets, but in our canon, we typically refer to these as the historical books. The 12 historical books pick up the history of Israel where it left off at the end of Deuteronomy. These books describe the occupation and settlement of Israel in the Promised Land, the transition from judges to the monarchy, the division and decline of the kingdom, the captivities of the northern and southern kingdoms, and the return of the remnant. We'll begin with the historical books looking at Joshua and Judges. There's a recurring view of history in the book of in these books. Um, theology and history are merged for Israel through the covenants of God, and the historical books unfold Yahweh's sovereign covenant work in history. First, we see cause and effect understood in view of God's covenant response to human activities and decisions. So we see a cycle in Judges. Sin brings war as judgment, leads the people to repentance, leads God to deliver them, and then a return to sin. It's not just a cycle, but it's a downward spiraling cycle as the people move deeper and deeper into sin. And then... In the book of books of Kings, we see the move into apostasy, or that is following other gods. Um, there are 19 kings in the north called Israel. They're all apostates, and eight of them are removed by violent overthrow. There are 22 kings total in these books, and only eight of them follow God. Israel's history is viewed in terms of her loyalty to the covenant, and so it's often called a Deuteronomistic Deuteronomistic theology, especially in Deuteronomy 27 through 30, we see this um, set up as obedience to the Mosaic law and faith in Yahweh are um, said to bring blessings and prosperity of the Mosaic covenant. Disobedience and a refusal to trust Yahweh will bring cursing instead. Even knowing this, Israel is continually disobedient and deserving of judgment, but God does not completely destroy the nation because of his covenant with Abraham. We see a clear design of the historical books. The design of Israel's historical literature was to teach about the way in which Yahweh, their covenant God, acted in history, especially in view of Israel's failures and unfaithfulness. This is often termed as Heilsgeschichte, that is salvation history. History is viewed as the arena in which God works out his plan of salvation. And so it's not simply a recounting of events in succession. Instead, the story is laid out in such a way as to tell the work of God, not so much to record history in the order in which it happened. Let's look first at the book of Joshua. The first half of Joshua describes the seven-year conquest of the land of the of promise through faith and obedience on the part of Joshua and the people. After their spiritual and physical preparation, the Israelites took the land in three campaigns, central, southern, and northern. The last half of the book details the partitioning of the land among the 12 tribes and closes with Joshua's challenge to the people. As we enter Israel, one of the first places that we will visit is Tel Dan. This is the part of the land that was divided to the tribe of Dan. So you might keep that in mind when we visit there. It's a pretty great place that Dan got to have as their homeland once they entered the promised land. The title of this book, Joshua, comes from the main character, son of Nun, 
The author himself is unknown, though Jewish tradition ascribes the authorship to Joshua. It covers the period of the conquest and division of the land of Israel. The books of Joshua and Judges tell the story of conquest and settlement. Joshua concentrates on the initial phase of the process, while Judges describes the struggle of the tribes of Israel to possess the land in the face of pressure from neighboring people. A careful reading of these books lets us know that the conquest was not accomplished in one generation, but instead extended over many generations. Not really until the time of David and Solomon does Israel control the entire region. And the Israelites had a very difficult time extending the limits of their control out of the mountains into the plains and valleys. Judges chapter 1 tells us that at the end of Joshua's life, there was still a lot of land that they needed to take control of. The first half of Joshua, chapters 1 through 11, emphasizes this conquest. The second half, in chapters 12 through 22, focuses on the division of the land between the tribes. There is a bit of a moral problem when we read Joshua as modern people. It's difficult for us to explain God's command to destroy everything through bloodshed and war. This was called the ban. There are some ways that we can begin to understand this. Deuteronomy 9.5 indicates that the people brought this on themselves by their own wickedness. Um, They worshipped fertility religions. They offered child sacrifice. They resisted God. Um, This description of God's command displays God's sovereignty and the necessity that Israel retain its identity as a kingdom of priests. The key understanding is that God's call was for them to be holy, which meant cleansing the land of uncleanness. The Canaanites were not without excuse. They heard of God's acts for Israel, and some of them chose to follow God and were not destroyed. Consider the story of the salvation of Rahab. We can also understand that Israel was not limitlessly imperialistic. They didn't try to overthrow all of the people. Even so, it can be difficult for us to really explain and understand um, the idea of God telling the Israelites to wipe out all of the people. There are really four main purposes to the book of Joshua. First, for God to bless Israel with a land that he promised when he elected Abraham and his descendants. It demonstrates that God keeps his promises. Second, for God to complete the formation of the nation as an elect people governed by God under the law and occupying a homeland. Third, to demonstrate for Israel that the gifts of the land rested in the historical fulfillment of Yahweh's promise. And fourth, to confirm that the Lord will fulfill his promises as the nation responds in obedience to the law of Moses. The theology of the Old Testament is radically tied to the land. There's a theology of the people of this land of Israel, which is why even to this day, um, The people who live in Israel really tie their understanding of God to their possession of this land. However, there's an ideal versus the reality that we see in the book of Joshua. 
The ideal of the promise of the land and the taking of the land in the Pentateuch um, gives the mandate as purely theological and unbothered by economic, political, military realities that are yet to come. The actual entry and taking of the land becomes quite another matter. Um, thus, it may be suggested that the burden of Joshua and Judges is to adjudicate between the simply um, between the simple claims of the Torah promises and the lived ambiguities of life in the real world. The key in understanding perspectives in Joshua and Judges is first to understand it's clear that on the ground the process of taking the land was not a simple or easy ordeal. Not until the time of David was it really accomplished. Second, it was a complicated process as seen with Rahab and the Gibeonites who are exceptions to their ideology. Um, showing that there are times when exceptions were made to this idea to wipe out all of the people. Third, the list of Judges 1, 21 through 36, with the repeated refrain, did not drive out, indicates in reality um, they did not accomplish the work to completely wipe out or clear out the people who were occupying the land when they arrived. There's a major shift in these two books. With the judgment in Judges 2, 2, and 3, we begin to see the um, return of theological emphasis from the book of Joshua to that of Judges. Whereas Joshua is almost completely about the gift of the land, Judges begins to reflect on the unwillingness of Israel to adhere to the Torah as a condition of the land. Let's move then into the book of Judges. The book of Joshua was full of great success for the people of Israel. The tribes had been unified under strong leadership of Joshua and had been very successful in the initial battles over the Canaanites as they entered the land. While Joshua records some momentary setbacks, such as Achan, the book overwhelmingly emphasizes success. This success was short-lived, however, as the book of Judges reveals. We see the Israelites as continually sinning against God, embracing the gods of the Canaanites, and depending on their own abilities rather than on God's strength and provision. The disobedience in Judges stands in contrast to the faithful obedience of Joshua. The Israelites did not drive out the Canaanites and further began to take part in their idolatry. The key for understanding the book of Judges is to see the record of seven cycles of foreign oppression, repentance, and deliverance. The people failed to learn from these cycles, and the book ends with two illustrations of idolatry and immorality. The book of Judges describes this downward spiral as the people move further and further away from God. In fact, the narrator of the book indicates multiple times that one of the main problems for the Israelites is that they failed to follow God, and instead, each person did whatever he or she wanted to do. The title of this book, Judges, comes from the heroes that God raises up to deliver the Israelites in times of crisis. The book begins um, at the death of Joshua and follows the people until the rise of Samuel. Let's talk about the definition and role of these judges. Um, this could be defined as deliverer or savior. Primarily, the judges were local military leaders who led a group or groups of Israelite people out of oppression by their enemies. Very rarely did they hand down decisions as modern judges do, though 
check Deborah for an exception. They also had little to do with civil duties. Um, there are two misconceptions that we could arrive at based on our own understanding of judges. First, the judges were not national leaders. They delivered or led individual or groups of tribes. They did not ever lead the entire nation of Israel at one time. And secondly, they didn't serve successively, that is, one after another. At times, one judge led a tribe or group of tribes in one area, while another judge was leading a tribe or group of tribes from another area, often at the same time. Samson and Jephthah, for instance, were contemporaries. They just were living and leading in different regions. Remember again that literary device used in the book, the cycle or pattern narrated in Judges 2 verses 6 through 23 that recurs over and over throughout the remainder of the book. The people sin, war is brought on them as judgment, God, uh, they repent and God delivers them, but they eventually end up back in sin. Judges 21-25 serves as a key passage summarizing the source of their problem. Quote, in those days, Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit, end quote. The book of Judges prepares us for the unified kingdom to come in later historical books with that particular refrain from Judges 21-25. It is, uh, this book is preparing us for the idea of the monarchy or united kingdom that is coming. There are two main factors suggested in Judges that serve to unite the tribes of Israel. The first of these were the religious ceremonies, such as the covenant renewal ceremony. The second, the need for a common response to the threat of war. If Judges paints a picture of corruption, sin, and downfall of Israel as they strayed from the Lord's purposes, the next books we'll encounter in the Old Testament indicate God's answer to the trouble that Israel faces. We see in the books of Ruth and Samuel individuals who demonstrate a steadfastness to the Lord rather than doing exactly as they please.